Happy New Year and Happy New Podcast. This is Film Vida. Hello, one and all, and welcome to the very first episode of my brand new show, where I, your film chef extraordinaire, Jack Martin, satisfy your movie taste buds every week with delicious helpings of new releases, reviews, special features, and plenty more. And I'm not going to lie, it is incredibly surreal to me that I'm recording this right now, having talked about doing this show for years and having planned it for the majority of the last year. But all of that really is nothing compared to actually sitting in front of this microphone, reading from my notes, and sharing my thoughts directly with you. So forgive me if I come across a bit nervous or even a bit jittery at first. It's just a matter of getting used to this very new format that I'm slowly realizing I'm in way over my head with more than I thought I'd be. But you're not here to listen to my anxieties. You're here because you want to know what exactly is Film Feeder? Why does it have a podcast now? And what can it possibly bring that so many other film podcasts out there have already brought? Well, primarily, and at the risk of sounding very self-serving, Film Feeder is an extension of myself. And by that I mean it's the culmination of my lifelong passion and love for film that I've had since I was very young, to where instead of sleeping with a cuddly toy as most other kids tend to do, I dozed off clutching my parents' VHS copy of Michael Mann's Last of the Mohicans. Which sounds weird, I know, especially since I have yet to even watch that film to this day, but I remember just being so enamoured with the cinematic cover artwork of this big, long-haired man who I'd later learned to be Daniel Day-Lewis, and the Warner Brothers logo on the spine that I recognised from all the Looney Tunes cartoons I used to watch, that I just simply would not part with it as much as my parents tried to pry it away from my tiny hands. That's where a lot of it came from and I think a lot of my early fascination with film has to do with the fact that when I was about two and a half I was diagnosed with Asperger syndrome which for those unaware is a mild form of autism that can cause a certain level of communication issues including the inability to pick up on certain feelings and emotions and a tendency to be rather clumsy and have some emotional outbursts from time to time and also a strong fixation on a certain topic in my case film that helps people like myself concentrate and cope in a world that they see differently to everyone else. And of course everyone with Asperger's is different and I know that there are a lot of other people with the same condition who are maybe a bit further along the spectrum in terms of their needs but for me I'm quite fortunate to be rather high functioning and able to communicate fairly well with others hence why I'm just about able to do this podcast right now. And I think that films have played a very big role in guiding me towards the kind of person that I am today because I've learned so much about communication emotions, self-expression, and just basic human functions from watching a lot of movies across my life. Which might sound a little pathetic, but for someone like me, I really don't know if I'd be as confident or as self-assured as I am today. So for that, I'll always have a big space for films in my heart and soul. And I've never really let my Asperger's define who I am either, for I've just focused on living my life on my own terms and expressing my love for film in ways that work best for me, beginning with when I was at junior school, when I'd regularly distribute little written documents to fellow students and teachers, movie newsletters I initially called them, and later when I started secondary school that evolved into a more intricate little zine once I discovered the creative wonders of Microsoft Publisher, where I wrote whole articles about the latest film releases, most of them inspired by my fascination with more proper movie magazines like Empire and Total Film. In fact, if you visit the Film Vida website at www.filmvida.co.uk, you can find and read some of those old zines at your own leisure. And then in 2013, as I was well into my university 
university studies, I finally decided to take the leap and turn Filmfeeder into its own functioning website, where I could post regular in-depth analytical film reviews and weekly previews that could reach many more people than a simple zine ever could. So it launched later that year, and since then it's just been my regular routine of writing and uploading my own content on the internet, something that I have kept up even as I went back to university recently to obtain my master's degree in film studies. Which by the way, I not only got an overall distinction, but my dissertation even won an award from the university, which I guess further satisfies my overall film knowledge. But last year, as Film Feeder approached its 10th anniversary, I began thinking of the many ways that it could finally evolve into something grander and more sophisticated to show the world that I meant serious business in the admittedly oversaturated online world of film criticism. And one of those was, of course, creating and releasing a podcast that could bring together a new community of film lovers who are hungry for information about the newest releases, what the best new offerings among them might be, and how they can get their regular movie fix without having to faff about with cinema listings and other less reliable outlets. So that's all just my long-winded way of helping you understand what Film Feeder is to me, and hopefully will be to you as well as the show gets underway each and every week, with each new episode going into detail about the biggest new releases coming to cinema, streaming, and on demand, with a collection of previews that I like to call movie menus, and providing some insightful reviews of films I've been able to taste test and report back on before or maybe even after you've had a chance to see them. On top of that, every week there'll also be what I'm dubbing a feature presentation, which is a spotlight section that will cover just about any interesting topics from within the world of film. Now, this could be anything from film lists to interviews to looking at the careers of big name actors and filmmakers to celebrating some iconic cinemas, all of which will be provided by me and maybe some special guests along the way too. Basically, what I'm doing here is trying to replicate the model of the old BBC film program, which I remember watching a lot when I was younger, when it was hosted by the likes of Barry Norman, Jonathan Ross, Claudia Winkleman, before it all went downhill and eventually went off the air. And I feel that there's been a huge gap in the market for shows that are just purely about new film releases. And with Film Feeder, I want to try and breathe some new life into it and remind listeners and viewers that even in an age where the internet and social media serve as more immediate methods of communication, shows like this are still needed to whet people's appetites while still giving them an informative slice of entertainment. So if any of that sounds like it'll do just the trick for you, and if you've managed to make it through my prolonged backstory, then stick around because this episode I'll be kicking off 2024 in style with a look at the top films to look forward to over the next 12 months, as well as giving some useful feedback on a couple of upcoming awards contenders. But before all of that, who's up for some tasty previews? And now, preview time. When it comes to entertainment, you can't beat a good film. So let's take a look at what's coming your way. That's right, you can't beat a good film, and my exclusively curated movie menus aim to give you a range of options for your next viewing, so that you can find the next good film in your life. First off, let's talk about the movie of the week, which is the film I've deemed to be the most notable entry of the bunch, as well as the worthiest of your attention, and this week, it's none other than Priscilla. This is the new film from writer-director Sofia Coppola, who of course has made films like The Virgin Suicides, Lost in Translation, Marie Antoinette, and others, and it tells the story of Priscilla Presley, the young wife of global superstar Elvis Presley, 
and how she was quickly swept off her feet by him when they met when she was 14 years old and he was stationed in West Germany during his army days, which led to a relationship and eventually a marriage that was filled with controlling and even abusive behaviour and led to Priscilla finding a life of her own out of Elvis's shadow. Kaylee Spaney, who you might have previously seen in films like Bad Times at the El Royale and Pacific Rim Uprising, won the Best Actress trophy at last year's Venice Film Festival and is currently nominated for a Golden Globe for her portrayal of the young Mrs. Presley, while the role of Elvis is here filled by Jacob Elordi, who you'll undoubtedly recognise from HBO's Euphoria as well as Emerald Fennell's Saltburn from last year. So I don't want to say too much about this film because I'll be talking about it a bit more in depth later on in the show, but for now I'll say that it's worth your time because it's a bold and quite daring new vision from the filmmaker that does not sugarcoat some of the darker aspects of this relationship, which might just be enough to entice the curiosity of Elvis fans as well as those of Sofia Coppola herself. And you can check it out in cinemas from New Year's Day, which is today, the release date of this episode, so it's showing now wherever you might be. Now, leading the way for this week's other cinema releases is One Life from director James Hawes, who makes his feature debut after directing episodes of shows like Doctor Who, Black Mirror, and Slow Horses, among others. So the film is about the life of Nicholas Winton, who in 1939 led a movement to evacuate hundreds of young refugees from Czechoslovakia before the Nazis could invade, and who later in life found his efforts rewarded with a heartfelt surprise on the set of the BBC show That's Life. Anthony Hopkins and Johnny Flynn both play Winton at these different points in time, with support from Romola Garay, Alex Sharp, Jonathan Price, and Helena Bonham Carter. And again, I don't want to go into too much detail since I'll be talking about this film later on too, but it is a deeply moving drama that you can now check out on the big screen, as it's also scheduled for wide release from today, New Year's Day. Now, those seeking something more sinister will find themselves floating more towards Night Swim, a new horror from producers Jason Blum and James Wan, who also produced last year's runaway horror hit Megan, or Mithrigan as it's meant to be written, which sounds like one of those creepy nice guys tipping their fedora to a room like Mithrigan. But anyway, the producers here help writer-director Bryce Maguire adapt the short film he co-created into a terrifying new feature about a family, including parents Wyatt Russell and Carrie Condon, moving into a new home with a swimming pool that has a deadly supernatural force lurking underneath the water. Now this doesn't come out until this Friday, the 5th of January, but it could already be this year's successor to Mithrigan, with its early release date certainly indicating that they're trying to replicate that movie's success. But it should come with its own weight of sinister scares and underwater thrills that any horror lover should eat right up. So once again, that's Night Swim, which comes out in cinemas this Friday. Also coming to cinemas that day is Scala with three exclamation points. This is the new documentary about the infamous Scala cinema that became famous throughout the Thatcher regime for screening a number of provocative exploitation films considered taboo at the time, and in doing so united a whole community of film lovers and artists who called the cinema their home. So it's directed by duo Ali Catterall and Jane Giles, the latter of whom was once a programmer for the Scala, and it features several interviews with filmmakers like John Waters and Ben Wheatley, as well as general film buffs like Kim Newman and comedian Stuart Lee, in addition to a soundtrack by legendary musician Barry Adamson, all of which makes up a fascinating new film that offers viewers the chance to just revel in the utter debauchery and mayhem of the Scala's legacy. Once again, that's Scala, three exclamation points, which comes to cinemas on Friday, the 5th of January. 
Next is the sci-fi thriller Blank from director Natalie Kennedy, which tells the story of an author, played by Rachel Shelley, who retreats to a futuristic house where she plans to finish her latest book. Now, said house is artificially intelligent and comes with its own robot assistant, played by Hyda Reed, who becomes more and more unhinged when a technical glitch traps the author inside the AI house of horrors. This one's interesting because it's got plenty of psychological thriller aspects with a sci-fi seasoning that's not unlike films like Ex Machina, as well as some disturbing performances that send chills down your spine. Once again, you can check out Blank when it too comes to cinemas from Friday. And then the final big release of the week is The Goldfinger, a new Hong Kong crime thriller that comes from the imagination of writer-director Felix Chong, best known as the screenwriter for the Infernal Affairs trilogy, which famously inspired Martin Scorsese's own Oscar-winning gangster flick The Departed. And that's not the only link with Infernal Affairs, for its stars Tony Leung and Andy Lau also take on lead roles in the film, with Lau playing an anti-corruption investigator who looks into the shady affairs of Leung's businessman in 1980s Hong Kong in a compelling saga inspired by the real-life corruption and fraud scandal of the Carrion Group conglomerate, which also happens to be the most expensive film production in Hong Kong history, with a budget of $350 million in local currency, which equals to about $35 million in British pounds and $44 million in US dollars. That's more than enough reasons to check out The Goldfinger, which, along with most of the other films on this list, is showing in cinemas from the 5th of January. Now, moving on to releases that are coming exclusively to streaming or on-demand services, Netflix has a couple of noteworthy releases right out of the gate, including the Spanish-language survival drama Society of the Snow, from director J.A. Bayona, who previously made The Orphanage, The Impossible, and, to a far lesser extent, Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, and who here tells the devastating true story of the 1972 incident that saw a flight of 45 passengers traveling from Uruguay to Chile suddenly crash land in the Andes Mountains where the small handful of survivors must do whatever is necessary to make it through the harsh snowy conditions even if it means resorting to some rather unspeakable acts. The film's already been gathering quite a lot of awards buzz with it being Spain's official entry for this year's International Feature Film Oscar and the powerful emotional impact that it's said to have should put it right at the front of the conversation when nominations are announced but you can judge for yourself when the film becomes available on Netflix from Thursday the 4th of January. And a day later is another hard-hitting drama, Good Grief, which is the directorial debut of Dan Levy, who you may know best as the co-creator and breakout star of the hit sitcom Shit's Creek, and who here also stars in his own script as a man left devastated by the sudden death of his husband Luke Evans, and then decides to take a weekend trip to Paris with his friends Ruth Neger and Himesh Patel. Said to be inspired by some of Levy's own personal losses, as well as the collective trauma shared by all of us during the recent pandemic, this is heartbreaking but profound stuff from Levy, who shows that he has just as mighty a skill for drama as he does for laugh-out-loud comedy, which will be evident once Good Grief arrives on the service. Meanwhile, Prime Video is the UK home of Freelance, the new action comedy from director Pierre Morel, who's best known for the first Taken movie, and here directs John Cena as a former Special Forces operative, who reluctantly takes a gig as the bodyguard of disgraced journalist Alison Brie, who's venturing to a South American country to interview its charming but ruthless dictator, played by Juan Pablo Raba, only for the three of them to be forced to flee when the country undergoes a major coup and then survive the oncoming rebellion. It's got plenty of explosive action, as well as John Cena being both cool and charismatic, to keep my and hopefully your curiosity afloat, especially because it's now streaming on Prime, so there's no more excuses for not seeking it out. And then finally, Sky Cinema has a doozy on offer with Arthur's Whiskey, the humorous tale of widower Patricia Hodge discovering an anti-aging elixir by her late husband. And along with her gal pals, Diana Keaton and Lulu, she decides to use it in order to revisit her youthful days, which as you might expect from this kind of comedy doesn't always go the way that they 
had hoped. But with silly laughs and a balmy premise, it's worth your curiosity now that it's streaming on that particular service. And that's about it for this week's movie menu. Hopefully you can pick out something among that list to go and see. Or at the very least know a bit more about what you're getting into before you tuck into the many new arrivals on your screens. So let's move on to the next section of the show, which is, of course, the feature presentation. As I mentioned earlier, this is the part of the show where I take a look at something interesting within the world of film. And seeing how it's the start of a new year, I'm taking a look ahead at just some of 2024's most exciting movies. 25 of them to be exact, and there's a lot to get through, so buckle up as I make my way through this expansive list. Though I should point out beforehand that the films on this list comprise of films that have not yet been released anywhere else in the world before this year. So there aren't any awards contenders like The Colour Purple or American Fiction or The Zone of Interest, all of which were released at some point last year, and I need to let you know that any of these movies could be bumped into next year and beyond at any given notice. So in case you're listening to this from way in the future and some of the following movies are no longer set for release in 2024, this is a list of what was scheduled to come out this year at the time of this recording. So all of that out of the way, starting at number 25, we have Godzilla x Kong The New Empire, which is the latest installment in Warner Brothers and Legendary's Monsterverse that reunites Titans Godzilla and the Mighty Kong as they team up to take on a new threat to their world as well as ours, with Godzilla vs Kong director Adam Wingard also returning for this film, as do stars Rebecca Hall and Brian Tyree Henry, along with newer faces like Dan Stevens in an unexpected reteaming with his director on The Guest, with the film currently scheduled for release on the 12th of April. And then from one empire to another, at number 24 is Ghostbusters Frozen Empire, the follow-up to Ghostbusters Afterlife that sees co-writer Gil Keenan take over directing duties from Jason Reitman as he relocates the action to the famous New York Firehouse, where the original Ghostbusters, including Bill Murray, Dan Aykroyd, and Ernie Hudson, team up with newer faces like Paul Rudd, Carrie Coon, Finn Wolfhard, and McKenna Grace to take on an ancient curse that causes the city to freeze over and threaten to plunge the rest of the world into a second ice age, which should make for a rather chilly Easter weekend when the film opens on Good Friday, which this year falls on the 29th of March. Number 23 sees a fourth helping of animated martial arts goodness when DreamWorks' Kung Fu Panda 4, with Jack Black, of course, returning as Poe the Dragon Warrior as he takes on a new threat to the kingdom in the form of Viola Davis's shape-shifting chameleon while also fulfilling a quest to become a new spiritual leader, and meeting new faces along the way, voiced by the likes of Aquafina and Kihui Kwan, which should boast some more of that gorgeously stylish animation when the film skadooshes into cinemas on the 28th of March, though those in the US will be getting the film a few weeks earlier on the 8th of that month. Next at 22 is Borderlands, an adaptation of the popular video game series by director Eli Roth, who recently gained some of the strongest reviews of his career with a seasonal slasher Thanksgiving, and who here turns his attention to the wild story of an intergalactic team of mercenaries, scientists, robots, and preteen demolitionists who set out on a noble mission. And with an all-star cast that includes Kate Blanchett, Kevin Hart, Jack Black, and Jamie Lee Curtis, among others, this could well continue the video game movie revival that began with last year's Super Mario Bros. movie, when it lands in cinemas on the 9th of August. And it's showtime at number 21 with the forthcoming release of Beetlejuice 2, director Tim Burton's long-awaited follow-up to his original horror comedy from 1988, which sees the return of Michael Keaton as the rambunctious supernatural bio-exorcist as he comes across familiar faces like Winona Ryder and Catherine O'Hara, and new ones including Wednesday star Jenna Ortega, Monica Bellucci, and even Willem Dafoe, with a hilarious and dark-natured story that should spook and delight audiences when it comes out on the 6th of September. 
For number 20, it's The Fall Guy, director David Leitch's big-budget action comedy that adapts the popular TV series about a Hollywood stuntman who moonlights as a vigilante, with said stuntman played here by everyone's favourite Ken Ryan Gosling, along in the ensemble that also includes Emily Blunt, Winston Duke and Aaron Taylor-Johnson, which is currently scheduled to kick off the summer blockbuster season on the 2nd of May. At number 19 is Alien Romulus, the latest entry in the sci-fi horror franchise that doesn't have a lot of plot details on hand at the moment, but is rumoured to be a standalone that isn't necessarily connected to the original films, or even the recent Prometheus strand, which some audiences weary of the latter might be relieved to hear. But with Don't Breathe director Fede Alvarez on hand, as well as formidable leads in both Kaylee Spaney and Isabella Merced, this could be the film to get the franchise back on track when it bursts into cinemas on the 16th of August. Number 18 is another one that doesn't have a lot of plot details, but after the surprise of last year's Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, I'm keeping more of an open mind about new animated takes on established franchises, which is very much the case with Transformers 1 from Toy Story 4 director Josh Cooley that's said to be a prequel set on the planet Cybertron as the relationship between Optimus Prime, voiced here by Chris Hemsworth, and Megatron, voiced by Brian Tyree Henry, is explored in great detail, while other Autobots and Decepticons will have the vocals of Scarlett Johansson, Keegan-Michael Key, John Hamm and Lawrence Fishburne coming out of their mouths, which in and of itself should make one curious before its arrival on the 18th of October in the UK, or the 13th of September if you're in the US. Then at number 17 is Civil War, the new film from Ex Machina writer-director Alex Garland that's already causing a bit of a divide online for its depiction of a dystopian America that's in the midst of a new civil war, where right-wing militias wreak havoc and President Nick Offerman is not to be trusted. But with the story focusing on a family made up of Kirsten Dunst, Wagner Mora, and Kaylee Spaney, there should be some humanity to the fear-mongering carnage when it arrives on the 26th of April. Number 16 sees Matthew Vaughan return to the realm of espionage with Argyle, but unlike his Kingsman movies, this one seems more of a blend between fiction and reality. A spy author, Bryce Dallas Howard, is thrust onto an international adventure when her stories mirror real-life conspiracies, with the aforementioned actor being only a part of the massive ensemble that includes Henry Cavill, Sam Rockwell, Samuel L. Jackson, Brian Cranston, John Cena, Ariana DeBose, and even Dua Lipa, who all bring their A-list power to the 2nd of February release. Following that at number 15 is a long-awaited film that's set to enchant musical lovers everywhere, Wicked Part 1. The first half of director John M. Chu's ambitious two-part film adaptation of the beloved stage musical that charts the origins of Oz's most magical beings, the Wicked Witch of the West and Glinda, played respectively here by Cynthia Erivo and Ariana Grande, with fun supporting turns by Bridgerton's Jonathan Bailey, Oscar winner Michelle Yeoh, and Jeff Goldblum as the Wizard of Oz himself. And with the film rumoured to only be covering the first act of the musical, with plenty of show-stopping numbers and powerful drama to go around, you can expect a film that will defy gravity as well as a number of box office records once it's released on the 29th of November. Next at number 14 is Gladiator 2, which sees director Ridley Scott return to the world of his best picture-winning historical epic, with a brand new story that focuses on young Lucius, the young nephew of the evil Emperor Commodus, who had a meaningful encounter with Russell Crowe in the first film, and is now all grown up and played by Paul Meskell for his own quest for vengeance. In this life, for the next, with the help of supporting players like Denzel Washington, Pedro Pascal, Stranger Things' as Joseph Quinn, and returning cast member Connie Nielsen. But you'll have to wait all the way until the 22nd of November to see how this one turns out. Lucky number 13 is for a film that hasn't had that much luck. It's Challengers, the spicy new romantic drama by Call Me By Your Name director Luca Guadagnino, which was meant to have come out last year and even opened the Venice Film Festival, but the actor strike at the time would have prevented the stars from showing up, hence why it was not only bumped to the 
following year, but also had its opening night privileges revoked. Which is a shame, because this looks like it'll be quite intriguing, as it stars Zendaya as a former tennis champion and coach who pits her husband Mike Feist against his former friend and her former lover, Josh O'Connor. But luckily it won't be long before we finally see what the fuss was about when the film grand slams its way into cinemas on the 26th of April. Number 12 is Inside Out 2, which is of course Pixar's latest sequel to their original hit film, which follows the anthropomorphized emotions like Amy Poehler's joy and Louis Black's anger, meeting and dealing with all sorts of new emotions as their host Riley becomes a teenager, which is bound to cause all sorts of hilarious chaos that should delight emotional audiences when the film drops on the 14th of June, just in time for the summer holidays. I'm eager to shout to the heavens about number 11, even if it means I'll be instantly gobbled up by blind aliens. It's A Quiet Place Day 1. The prequel to John Krasinski's tense horror series that sees pig director Michael Sarnowski give a look at the early days of the global invasion by creatures that hunt only by sound. And with Lupita Nyong'o, Joseph Quinn and Jaiman Onsu among the cast, you can expect powerhouse low-volume performances galore when it tiptoes into cinemas on the 28th of June. It's time to rev up number 10 on the list, which is Jeff Nichols' The Bike Riders. Now, this was due for release late last year in time for awards season, but during the actor strike, it was removed from the schedule by original distributor Disney, and then out of the blue, it was dropped entirely by the studio, with distribution now being handled by Universal, who have set it for release on the 21st of June. So I have actually seen this film already. I saw it at last year's BFI London Film Festival, and it is genuinely really good, with some excellent performances by an ensemble that includes Austin Butler, Tom Hardy, Jodie Comer, and Nichols' regular actor Michael Shannon. And I am very excited for wider audiences to have the chance to see it upon its release, which once again is the 21st of June. Now another film I saw at the London Film Festival also happened to be my personal favourite of all the ones I saw, and that's Richard Linklater's Hitman, which comes in at number 9. This stars Glenn Powell as a mild-mannered college professor who begins working for the police as an undercover operative posing as, as an assassin, which he ends up being rather good at, until he comes across Adria Arjona, who wants to hire him to take out her abusive boyfriend, only for them to form a relationship of their own. And I don't want to spoil any more of it, because this movie is honestly fantastic. I can't wait to watch it again with an audience which might be hard to do because Netflix is releasing it and knowing their release strategy I mean finding this on the big screen might be a mission in and of itself but nonetheless I'm hyped for this one even though there's no confirmed release date yet at the time of recording this episode. Now back to films I haven't already seen at number eight is The Lord of the Rings The War of the Rohirrim. Wait there's a new Lord of the Rings film coming out? Well yes there is and not only that but it's going to be a fully animated new entry by Japanese anime filmmaker Kenji Kamiyama a prominent figure in the industry having worked on films and shows like 009 Re-Cyborg, as well as being a background artist on the likes of Akira and Kiki's Delivery Service, and who here directs a story set 261 years before the Battle of Helm's Deep in The Two Towers, when the King of Rohan, Helm Hammerhand, voiced by Brian Cox, defends his kingdom from an oncoming army of wild men known as Dunlendings. And there's even space for Miranda Otto to reprise her role as Eowyn, who narrates the story for the viewer. Now, not much else is known about this, including what exactly the animation style will be like, but my curiosity has certainly peaked, as is yours hopefully, even though it's not due out until the 13th of December. Coming in at number 7 is Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, which sees director Wes Ball of the Maze Runner trilogy, 
and who's also tapped to direct the new Legend of Zelda adaptation, continues the story of the evolved race of apes some 300 years after the death of Caesar, whose teachings are now being warped by power-hungry rulers, prompting a young ape played by Owen Teague from the It films to go on a dangerous journey with a feral human played by the witches Freya Allen, which should boast some breathtakingly realistic effects and a meaningful story when it comes to conquer cinemas on the 24th of May. Number 6 is the follow-up to 2019's most divisive smash hit, Joker Thully Adu, which not only brings back Joaquin Phoenix to his Oscar-winning take on the iconic Batman villain, as well as director Todd Phillips, but has only gone and bagged itself Lady Gaga to play the Joker's most loyal sidekick Harley Quinn, in a film that's intriguingly said to be much more of a musical this time around, but with the darker edges still very much intact, which you'll see and provide a whole new realm of online discourse for when it arrives on the 4th of October. For number 5, it's fitting that it goes straight from the only DC movie of 2024 to the only Marvel movie of 2024, not including Madam Web and Craven the Hunter, which, needless to say, are not on this list. That of course being Deadpool 3, which brings Ryan Reynolds' insanely popular fourth wall breaking mutant into the MCU, along with the one and only Hugh Jackman who's back as a new variant of Wolverine, as well as a number of other Fox Marvel characters who are being kept firmly under wraps, as is the norm with Marvel movies of this size, and with it also being the MCU's first R-rated film, you can also expect plenty of Deadpool's regular helping of violence and swear words, when the film finally bows on the 26th of July. Then at number 4 is Mickey 7 which is Bong Joon-ho's eagerly awaited follow-up to his Oscar-winning masterpiece Parasite, and he's going full science fiction with his adaptation of the novel Mickey 7 by Edward Ashton, which is about a crew member on a dangerous mission who, whenever he gets killed, is reborn into a brand new body with some of his memories still intact, and with a final ensemble cast that includes Robert Pattinson, Stephen Yun, Naomi Aki, Tony Collette, and Mark Ruffalo, this should be a treat worthy of the Oscar winner himself, but you'll be able to find out for yourself when the film opens on the 29th of March. Now for number three, I am going to cheat just a little bit because this film is actually scheduled to be released in the UK on New Year's Day 2025, a whole week after its Christmas debut in the US, but I think it should just about count as a 2024 release, for the UK anyway. It's Robert Eggers' remake of Nosferatu, the Dracula-inspired tale of a monstrous count that sets his sights on a beautiful young woman. Now I love Robert Eggers as a filmmaker, he's made three films now, The Witch, The Lighthouse, and most recently The Northman, all of which are not just been beautifully stylish but well versed in their own insane worlds, and one should expect no less from his take on the German expressionist classic, especially with Pennywise himself, Bill Skarsgård, playing the demonic vampire of the title, alongside Lily Rose Depp, Nicholas Holt and Willem Dafoe. So sharpen your fangs and carve your wooden stakes as this deeply gothic new take on Nosferatu arrives much later in the year, and just a little bit into next year too. At number 2 is another strike-delayed release from last year, but it's shaping up to be an absolutely epic one. It's Dune Part 2, the long-awaited second half of Denis Villeneuve's massive adaptation of the classic Frank Herbert sci-fi novel, which picks up from where Part 1 left off as Timothy Chalamet's Paul Atreides, having been forced to flee in the wake of an attack by his family's enemies, the Harkonnens, becomes a saviour figure to the wild Freeman, and becomes attached to Zendaya's Chani in the process. So while the first part was very much about setting up this universe and 
establishing the vast law that Herbert managed to contain in his utter brick of a novel, this one is set to pick up the pace exponentially, with plenty of blockbuster action set to some of those glorious Oscar-winning visual effects, and draped in luscious cinematography that covers over its stellar A-list cast, which in addition to other returning faces like Josh Brolin, Rebecca Ferguson and Javier Bardem, includes newcomers like Florence Pugh, Austin Butler and the legendary Christopher Walken as the universe's mighty emperor. So strap yourself in for a spicy second part of this massive story when it finally worms its way into cinemas on the 1st of March. And finally, positioned firmly at number one, I'm keeping the Sandy theme because it's Furiosa, a Mad Max saga, the feverishly anticipated prequel to director George Miller's modern classic Mad Max Fury Road, which is for my money perhaps the greatest action film to have ever been made. So that's already a massive act for this film to follow, especially as it turns back the clock to focus on a young Furiosa, now played by Anya Taylor-Joy, who's snatched from her home in the green place of many mothers and placed in the hands of Chris Hemsworth, brutish warlord Dementus. But Taylor-Joy looks like she slips even easier into the lead role than Charlize Theron did as the iconic character, and Hemsworth seems to be in full OTT mode as the film's devilish new villain, so expect plenty of beautiful cast stunts and high-octane action that only George Miller can deliver when the film races into cinemas on the 24th of May. And there you have it folks, that was my list of films to keep an eye out for in 2024. I know it was a long one and thank you so much for sticking with me all the way through it, but hopefully it's been useful as you plan your exciting new year of movies. So let's unwind a bit now and get into some more thoughtful film reviews. So if the movie menu was the appetizer and the feature presentation was the main course, then consider these reviews to be the sweet and savoury dessert that you just can't say no to. So this is the section where I give my detailed and honest thoughts on some of the newest releases, which may consist of ones coming out this week or ones that I was able to see over the last seven days in between episodes. But I always try and give them as much time as I can to fully articulate my thoughts. And I tend to give films a rating out of five stars, a bit like Michelin stars, but for movies, with one star of obviously being the worst possible racing and five stars being the best. So I've only got two reviews for you this week just to keep things fairly light, but they're ones that I teased earlier during the movie menu and I'm sure you're excited for me to get right into them. So first up is Priscilla, which once again is written and directed by Sofia Coppola, who takes inspiration from the real life Priscilla Presley's tell-all memoir Elvis and Me for her own portrait of the troubled relationship and later marriage between Jacob Elordi's Elvis and of course Kaylee Spaney's Priscilla. Now I've seen this movie twice. The first time was at a public showing at the Beerfine London Film Festival last October, and I remember it was one of like four movies I saw in a single day, so I was already feeling a bit weary before going in, and honestly, after that initial screening, I was rather underwhelmed by it. Like, maybe I was expecting something more eventful, but the film never really came to life for me, even though it was rather gorgeously made, which tends to often be the case with a stylish filmmaker like Sofia Coppola, but I just didn't find myself getting that invested in the story, or the characters who felt like they were very thinly sketched, and it gave off the vibe of one of those sensationalised made-for-TV biopics that exaggerate a public figure's private life for dramatic purposes, with this one feeling as though it would have had a better home on the Lifetime channel more than anything. So that was my initial reaction, and you can read the original three-star review on the Film Feeder website at www.filmfeeder.co.uk, but since then I've been thinking back on it a lot, especially after it's received quite a lot of praise by critics and audiences, so I got to thinking maybe 
maybe there was something that I missed the first time around, or maybe I just wasn't in the right headspace. So I was very curious to go back and re-watch the film and give it a fairer glance. And lo and behold, I was able to sneak in another screening a few weeks ago. And honestly, I actually really enjoyed it the second time. Like, retrospectively, I feel like equating it to a Lifetime movie was very unfair, for while at first it seemed like it was going through the motions of a made-for-lifetime biopic, Coppola neatly packs a lot of harrowing themes and topics under the seemingly artificial surface, which are present in scenes of Priscilla being emotionally manipulated and verbally sometimes physically abused by Elvis, which are deeply unsettling, especially for how matter-of-factly they are executed. But Coppola does well to keep her film from ever taking a turn into the melodramatic, which really would have given off Lifetime vibes, and instead gently nudges it towards a sobering portrait of a toxic relationship, where you get to see how isolating and lonely her existence is because he simply has to be in control of everything, due to all of the control that's been taken away from him by other parties such as Colonel Tom Parker, who is mentioned often but never actually appears, but is always a lingering presence that adds a subtle layer of tragedy to Elvis's character. And as in some of her previous movies like The Virgin Suicides and Marie Antoinette, Coppola charts a young girl's journey toward womanhood through a series of emotionally taxing episodes in stark contrast to the luxurious lifestyle they lead. And in Priscilla, she gives her title character plenty of room to develop her own agency and autonomy within her relationship with Elvis. And as a result, you really do see her grow from a naive and somewhat reserved young teenager to a self-assured woman who's confident in her own path. Something that allows a loosely strung narrative, which was another thing I unjustly criticised in my first review, to make her development much more apparent. Now, this in turn revealed an achievement that I wasn't able to to pick up on before, which was how Coppola has deeply humanised a historical figure who's been iconised in the wake of her husband's legend status. And the loose narrative structure is intentional as it lets this person naturally grow from the shy and petite figure to someone who is capable of creating their own destiny, which is accentuated by Coppola's writing and stylish direction, as well as some striking costume designs and, honestly, a perfectly wound lead performance by Kaylee Spaney, who is excellent in the film. Now, as for Jacob Elordi, he's fine, but I honestly never fully bought him as Elvis, probably because he's perhaps a bit too soft to portray Elvis's rogue bad boy nature, which was something that Austin Butler nailed and then some in the Baz Luhrmann film. Now, I still don't think Priscilla is perfect, there are some scenes and sections that end up going nowhere, and you can tell where a quick edit could have made all the difference, but by and large I am very glad that I was able to revisit Priscilla, and like it a lot more on my second viewing, because rarely do I ever go back and reevaluate a film, especially one that I didn't care that much for the first time round, but for this one I knew that there had to be more than what I originally saw, and thankfully there was. So overall I'd give Priscilla a 4 star rating, which equates to a meal you'll be hungry for more helpings of, and it's now showing in cinemas. So that was my review for Priscilla, now I'm moving on to One Life, a new film from director James Hawes, which like Priscilla I also saw during the BFI London Film Festival, and even saw again fairly recently at an advanced screening. But unlike Sofia Coppola's film, my opinion on One Life is really no different to how it was the first time, which is that it's certainly a good movie, a very moving and profound one at that, but it's maybe a bit too safe and conventional for a story of this magnitude. So the story, as a quick reminder, it's set at two points in the life of humanitarian Nicholas 
Nicholas Winton, who in 1939 is played by Johnny Flynn as he heads a movement to evacuate hundreds of children from Czechoslovakia, something that he's recognised for in the late 80s when Winton, now played by Anthony Hopkins, becomes the subject of an important episode of the BBC's variety programme, That's Life. Now, you might have seen clips of that particular episode on YouTube, TikTok, some of which are slightly edited to emphasise the sentimentality of the moment, and that's basically what One Life is, a feature-length biopic that details Nicholas Winton's heroic deeds, and does so in ways that can be genuinely emotional. The thing is, though, the script, which is credited to Lucinda Coxon and Nick Drake, tends to follow a very conventional pattern when it comes to this kind of biopic, where you'll get a lot of standard scenes where the central figure goes from one show-stopping monologue straight into another, while many of Winton's wartime heroics are somewhat watered down to make the film's narrative flow a bit smoother, with certain supporting characters providing light comic relief every now and then to offset the heavier emotional moments, namely Helena Bonham Carter as Winton's German-born mother who assists her son on his noble mission. She's good in the film too. So the script goes through many of the expected motions that are found within many other similar historical biopics, and it sticks safely to that pattern without much deviation, which in a way does make it less profound than a story like this really deserves. But when it does manage to overcome some of its familiarity, the film works rather well to show how much this singular event clearly meant to this person, and how despite the good it did for so many people, he never really took credit for his actions until he was unearthed on that episode of That's Life. And while Johnny Flynn is very good in the film, it is the strand featuring Anthony Hopkins as Winton that's the stronger of the two. Not just because Hopkins delivers a truly sublime performance here, but also because you really do feel the weight of guilt and uncertainty overshadowing him as he reminisces back to his defining moment. Moments, with both the script and Hall's direction managing to focus tightly on his inner struggle without really lionising him, which it is much more on the verge of doing during the strand with Johnny Flynn. I think it goes without saying that the best moments in the film are during the taping of those legendary That's Life episodes, which if you've seen those online videos, you'll already know how emotional they ended up being for everyone involved. But in these reenactments, they really do leave you in a way where you're undoubtedly choked up while watching them play out, with the direction, writing, editing, musical score, and certainly the acting all harmoniously working to deliver the right mood for these powerful scenes, and they land rather beautifully without overdoing the melodrama, in the process giving this main figure the kind of treatment that his heroic actions absolutely call for. I just feel that if the script had taken a few more chances with the real life story it's been tasked with telling, this could easily have been one of those films that would be fondly remembered as one of the great British war dramas, but as is, it's pleasant viewing with moments of brilliance, even though its conventional trappings are a tricky pit to crawl out of, rendering it perfectly watched but far from fresh and sadly not quite as profound as this man's life should be on the screen. So it's ultimately a three-star movie, which by my ranking system makes it a decent stomach filler. And with that, the first episode of the Film Feeder podcast has finally come to an end. I don't know about you, but I'm feeling so pumped that I've been able to get through it with my sanity still intact. So thank you so much for sticking with me, and hope that your stomachs are now a bit fuller than they originally were. So uh, yeah, be sure to subscribe to this podcast to get it fresh every week, and please do give it a decent rating and share with anyone who's hungry for film. You can also find and follow Film Feeder on Twitter, or X as Elon wants us all to call it. That's at Film Feeder, which is also the same handle for both TikTok and YouTube where I regularly post shortened video reviews and weekly previews and on Instagram it's at filmfeederinsta I-N-S-T-A. I also have pages on Facebook and Letterboxd where I also post fairly regularly. Now something I want to draw your attention to is the new Film Feeder Patreon page where if you go to patreon.com slash filmfeeder you can sign up for one of our special membership tiers where you can get exclusives like early 24-hour access to new podcast episodes, access to a special Discord server, 
and you can also submit questions for me to answer in an upcoming episode among many other exclusive perks and perhaps most importantly is the film feeder website which is at www.filmfeeder.co.uk where you can find all of my written content from the past 10 years as well as more recently so please make sure you see what i've been up to on there once again that's www.filmfeeder.co.uk so that about does it for the very first episode of film feeder joining me next week when i'll be talking about new releases such as poor things which i'll have a review for as well as a special look at the top films of its oscar tip star emma stone until then i'm jack martin your film chef extraordinaire ready to whet your appetite for film every single week that's all for now see you next time